Good morning, Sun Valley. It's good to have you here today. Thank you for coming. I'm very excited to open the Word of God for you here this morning and share with you what the Holy Spirit has put on my heart. And uh, I'm convinced that uh, what you have, what the Holy Spirit has for you this morning is of great worth. Uh, such a significant section of Scripture. We're going to be in Romans 8, so if you have a Bible, turn there with me, and we'll be focusing primarily on verses 18 through 27. Uh, not many of you uh, were here the first time I preached through the book of Romans, but uh, quite a while ago, 15 years ago, I think I started, or more, started preaching through the book of Romans. And when we got to Romans 8, it took us eight months to get through this chapter, and we're trying to pull it off in eight weeks. So you see the, the challenge in front of us, right? You, you see that we're not going to be able to go through at a, at a significant depth. We are going to do, in fact, a flyby, um, even though it's an eight-week flyby. Uh, nevertheless, what we're learning here, what I want you to hear is from the Spirit of God recorded here by the Apostle Paul. I guess I say that because I don't want you to think that uh, I'm not being comprehensive or exhaustive uh, as we go through Romans 8. I'm not sure there ever has been an exhaustive study of Romans 8. I, maybe Lloyd-Jones and his massive commentary, but... Uh, in terms of pulpit ministry, th this is uh, something that's difficult to do because of the depth of Romans 8. But here we are, we're trying to, to mine what we can and, and learn the good things that the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. And I, I pray, as I have all week, that the Lord would have prepared your hearts and that you would be ready to hear from the Holy Spirit and what He has to say to us this morning. Romans really is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome to remind them how sinful people can have a right relationship with a holy God. That statement alone is significant and profound. Sinful people can have a right relationship with a holy God. Romans explains how that could be. This, this letter here that we have, the book of Romans, tells how someone can have their sins forgiven even though they continue to sin and be declared not guilty by the God of heaven, the judge of all creation. It details what your life should look like after that act of divine grace, including our monumental struggle with sin, trying to, to beat down sin, put down sin, and, and go on with Christ. It records that process, that important process. When we get to Romans 6 through Romans 8, we have what many have called the theology of the Christian life what it means to live as a Christian, what's involved in following Jesus. So by the time we get to Romans 8, we're, we've covered a lot of ground and we're ready to hear what the Apostle Paul says there in the very first chapter, very first sentence of Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. One of the most well-loved verses in all of Scripture. Now we have, as we've studied already in the past few weeks, we see that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the life and the walk of, of faith with every Christian. We are in need of the Holy Spirit's work in us to continue to walk this path that God has prepared for us. And verses 1 through 17 primarily covers the work of the Holy Spirit in each of us. In fact, in those verses, the Holy Spirit is referred to 19 times. 
So just that alone, just by counting the times that, that the Holy Spirit's name shows up, will tell you that he's a big part of the Christian life. Today, though, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. And Paul brings up a topic in this particular section of Romans 8 that is so important for every Christian to hear. I want to emphasize to you the importance of this by simply asking you to put aside anything that might be in your mind, any distraction that might be around you, so that you can hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to you in the next 30 minutes. It is of massive importance to your successful walk with Christ. I'm convinced that if you don't grasp the magnitude of this subject matter, your Christian life will most likely be dysfunctional and disappointing, and you will spend the most of your Christian life in defeat if you don't get this. In fact, you may even get so frustrated with your Christian life, you'll walk away like many have. Paul addresses in these verses here the problem of suffering as a Christian. Suffering as a Christian. How should we think about suffering? Additionally, how should we think about a God who ordains suffering for his people? Not for the enemies of God, but for the people of God. Our God, it says here, ordains suffering for us. <laughs> how are we supposed to think about that? Well, the Apostle Paul is about to tell us. In fact, these, these few verses here in, in Romans 8 are really spiritual oxygen for anybody who is trying to navigate the hard times of life. If we're going to successfully navigate the Christian life, we must be able to think biblically about suffering because we encounter it daily. We must have walked, we must have walked with Christ. We must have a, a sense of the Spirit's direction if we're going to navigate this, this challenging life that's laid out before us. It would be very easy to conclude that something must be wrong with me or, or something must be wrong with my faith or even worse, something might, must be wrong with God because I'm suffering so much. This can't be right. Many think that when they come to faith in Christ and begin to live for him that he, he ought to start looking out for them a little more and, and making their life a little bit more comfortable and, and maybe even better than it was before he knew Christ. Many think that becoming a Christian is the removal of problems, not the addition of problems. But what Paul wants you to know, what the Holy Spirit wants you to know this morning, friend, is that becoming a Christian doesn't make life easier. That is not the point of becoming a Christian. In fact, life takes on a new set of problems that weren't there before you knew Christ. We are now, once we are in Christ, in opposition to the world. And with this opposition comes challenges that didn't exist before. We, we now have a, a sworn enemy who is actively working against us to destroy us. This enemy is Satan, and he no longer ignores us because we've sided with Christ. Satan no longer is free to just say, I'll let him go. No, he, he's after us now. When we come to Christ, Satan and all his demons go on high alert and begin to take specific aim at us and are determined to bring us down. That's something new when you come to Christ. As much as we'd like to think it, we are not immune to the problems that everybody faces. We get sick. 
our children drift, our financial problems mount, our marriages struggle, and so on and so forth. And we have the added challenge of a new and powerful enemy who wants us to fail. Paul wants us to see the God-intended purpose for our suffering. And right up front, I want you to hear God wants us to learn through our suffering. He's intended to use suffering for our good and our growth. He wants us to see that in order to become like Jesus, we must endure suffering as Jesus did. We just heard that read earlier. If Jesus suffered, then we must suffer if we expect to be like him. Look at verse 17, for example, in chapter 8. And if children, Paul's speaking to Christians here, if, if you consider yourself a child of God, then you're an heir. In fact, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Look at the next, the next line. Provided we suffer with him. So Paul is saying, you want the inheritance promised to all of God's children? <laughs> that comes with suffering. That's what Paul's saying here. So how are we going to navigate suffering as a Christian? How are we going to keep our faith, keep our joy, when our life begins to crumble around us as it inevitably does? Paul tells us in this passage that surviving suffering requires three things. And I'm going to cover those three things for you today. The first is this, a right perspective. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22 and then do my best to explain them to you. A right perspective. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. What I, want to, what, you, what I want you to hear from these verses is that if we're going to successfully navigate suffering, we had better have the right perspective. The right perspective. Having a right perspective is, is a good thing for any part of life, isn't it? Parenting, business, you know, navigating relationships in your neighborhood. Perspective is important. And, and it's no more important when we come to suffering in the Christian life. God intends suffering to wean us from the world. You know, we are connected at the hip to the world, and the only way that we're weaned from that connection is through suffering. It helps us to focus on God, that is, suffering does. It helps us to keep our minds on things above instead of on earthly things. Suffering really grabs hold of the, the world by the roots and yanks it out of our life. God intends this to be the case. You cannot suffer as a Christian and remain attached to the world. So, there's suffering. Suffering is also a big part of sanctification. How are you going to become like Jesus if everything is smooth sailing? How are you going to become like Christ if you're never challenged in your faith? <laughs> you won't. And so what happens is God brings suffering into our lives to wean us from the world, to conform us to Christ. This is what Romans 8 teaches us. It's such an important part of the Christian life. God uses our suffering to purify us, to refine us. It has a way of waking us up and keeping us down, keeping us humble, keeping us dependent, looking to Jesus because we suffer. This is 
so important, Christian friend, please hear me. Suffering also helps encourage us, and as we are encouraged, we can extend encouragement to others who are going through suffering. We can extend comfort to those who need comfort. This burden of suffering that we experience, and it takes all shapes and sizes, this, this burden of suffering helps us identify with those around us who are going through the same things. It gives us credibility, if you will, in the world. Oh, you've been through that? So have I. I know what you're struggling with. The, the world is full of people who suffer, and they, they need people who know God to help them walk through it. Suffering is also given to us so that we can exalt God to an unsaved world. Do you know when most people come to faith, do you remember what brought you to faith if it wasn't in your home as a child? Do you remember what brought you to faith? Hard times is what brought you to faith. And so having suffered, we can help point people to Christ in their suffering. People come to Christ when life is treating them poorly. They, they lose hope. They, they lose a, a sense of calm. And so they, they run someplace, somewhere usually to what the world has to offer, but we here sit here, having suffered, say, come to Christ, come to Christ. Now, there's a lot of false teaching concerning suffering. Some say that if you have faith, there shouldn't be any suffering for the Christian. That's false. Some say if you'll just be obedient or, or more obedient, you won't experience as much suffering. That's false. There isn't a Christian who, who will make it through life unscathed without suffering. Suffering is an ally. It brings us into a deeper walk with Christ. It helps us understand our sin and run from it to Jesus. Suffering isn't just for those poor Christians or those poor people who don't know Jesus. Suffering is more for us who do know Jesus to bring about God's design for each of us who love him. And so I can say confidently with the Apostle Paul that God specifically purposefully, intentionally designs your suffering for you. Your suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever you're going to go through, is custom designed by God to create his purposes in you. Keep that in mind as you go through dark times. You th to give you example, Job was a righteous man, right? That's what the Bible calls him. He was a righteous man. He wasn't suffering because he had done something wrong or because he wasn't walking circumspectly. He was suffering because God intended to make him suffer, to bring him more in tune with Christ, to make him more dependent upon God. Job. How about Abraham? Abraham had a nice, comfortable life in Ur, didn't he? Yeah. Then God calls him out of Ur and asks him to follow him into a desert. Why? To teach him to trust God, to teach him to become a friend of God. And so he designed the things in Abraham's life, suffering, so that he would become more like Christ. You remember the disciples, Jesus, 12 disciples, fledgling followers of Christ, very weak in their faith. In the midst of their weakness, Jesus sends these 12 young believers into the Sea of Galilee at night by themselves, for what reason? To suffer. That's why they went. That's why Jesus sent them. And it's not like Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit 
enjoys seeing his people suffer. He enjoys seeing the result of their suffering, which is Christ's likeness. This is God's design. James, in fact, in his epistle, which is about signs of genuine faith, says this in verse 4, Consider it all joy when you encounter sufferings of any kind. Be happy about it. Why? Because God produces Christ's likeness through suffering. One of the proofs of our relationship to Jesus is that we suffer and that we suffer well. In verse 17, Paul said that we are children and heirs provided we suffer with him. So, are you in Christ? If you are, you'll suffer. Important to know that. So why does Paul introduce the idea or the topic of suffering suffering right here in Romans 8? Well, it's because he's teaching about what to expect in the Christian life. He doesn't want you to be surprised. He wants you to understand why you're going through what you go through. If you're breathing, you're going to have and you'll continue to have suffering until the day you see Jesus. So the Apostle Paul sanctifies the idea of suffering, helps us understand God's purpose in our suffering so that we'll give glory to God for our suffering. Paul introduces the idea of suffering in verse 17, and then in verses 18 through 27, he unpacks how to deal with it. How are you going to survive this suffering? How are you going to manage it? Because suffering is never fun. The word for, you can see that in verse 18, for... It's an explanatory word explaining what he just said in verse 17. The only way to collect your inheritance is by suffering. He said you're going to have inheritance in verse 17. You want to collect on it? The only path to that is by suffering. Can't have one without the other. And so a right perspective, there's three areas, remember, that we must grasp. The first is a right perspective. A right perspective begins in verse 18 with an important comparison, an important comparison. I want you to focus on verse, on verse 18 and the word consider. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. This term in the original language is really a mathematical term. It's used for mathematical calculation whereby someone can come to a conclusion based on looking at the evidence. By comparing our present suffering, Paul says, against future glory, you should come to the following conclusion. We can navigate our present circumstances, no matter how challenging they might be, if we'll just examine, just uh, compare the difference between our suffering and our future glory. Paul wants us simply to examine the facts. Do the math, he's saying. That's why he uses the word. In fact, the, the Greek word is logizomai. Logizomai. You can hear a mathematical term there, can't you? Logizomai. Logarithm. That's where we get the word. Paul is saying, listen, it's just about math. It's as simple as math. What you see yourself going through, this pain, is nothing compared what we're anticipating. This is really what Paul is saying. It's not a subjective issue. It's concrete. He wants us to, to carefully evaluate the issue of suffering against what awaits us in the next life. Then, and only then, we'll be able to make good decisions, hold the right attitudes concerning our current sufferings. These are, of course, real sufferings that Paul's talking about because of the fact that he's asking us to weigh them against something so significant. 
future glory. So these must be significant. They're real, and they're not just singular, they're plural, they're many. Notice the word sufferings is in the plural. There's a lot of them coming, is what Paul's saying. And these are real, life-altering type sufferings. These are like getting sucker punched in the stomach type sufferings, ton of bricks on the head type sufferings. These include facing death in our families. These include facing death ourselves. It includes the loss of jobs, the loss of health, the loss of relationships, the loss of investments, the loss of reputation. It includes unfair treatment. It includes disappointing one another. All of it, serious levels of suffering. Paul is encouraging us to keep our suffering in perspective. You can't allow your suffering to undo you, to discourage you, to derail you, Christian. Paul's teaching us that the way to keep suffering from stealing our joy and shipwrecking our faith is to keep it in perspective, this perspective. Compared to the glory, listen, Christian friend, compared to the glory that is to come, for those of us who are in Christ, we've never had a bad day, ever. Compared to the glory that's to come, you can say, well, you don't know my life. Well, the Holy Spirit might, right? What does he say? It's nothing compared to the future glory. This is so important, friends, compared to what we have waiting for us in the future, when we see Jesus, our suffering is insignificant. Notice also that this glory that we are comparing to suffering isn't very clear yet. You see it there at the end of verse 18? That is to be revealed. It is to be revealed. It hasn't yet been revealed. We don't know exactly what that future glory looks like, but we have a pretty good idea, right? It's to be revealed. We only have small glimpses in Scripture about what this future glory might look like. But it seems pretty impressive what we know, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could get someone, maybe, maybe someone who's been there just shortly, like R.C. Sproul. He remembers life on earth. He remembers his sufferings here. And yet he's experienced the glories of heaven. What do you think R.C. would say if he had 10 minutes or 10 seconds in this pulpit right now? He would say this to begin with. What's the matter with you people? Right? He was famous for saying that. What's the matter with you people? Listen, it is so worth it. Keep on keeping on. Just get there. Get there. If we combine these spiritual glimpses in Scripture of glory with our faith and then add in the truthfulness of Jesus that we're aware of, we can sustain our joy and our faith in all of our sufferings. Remember what Jesus said to his weary disciples in John 14? They were a little concerned about him leaving, and he said, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to come back for you, but while I'm gone, I'm going to make the future so awesome you're not going to believe it. Turn with me, in fact, to Revelation real quick. Put your thumb in, in uh, Romans 8. Turn with me to Revelation 21. I want you to, and, I'm, and by the way, if you want a more clear view of the future, and how to use that to, to help navigate you through the present sufferings you're experiencing, read all of Revelation 21 and 22. I'm just going to read for you one verse, verse 4, to give you a taste. So here's what Paul would say we're comparing our sufferings to. God, and that says he, but it means God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Whose eyes? Our eyes. Ours who are with him. 
And death shall be no more, there shall be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And it says in verse 5, Behold, Jesus said, I am making all things new. Does that sound good to anybody? Oh, my goodness. Just, just contemplate that for a little bit. What I just read for you. And if that doesn't do it, keep reading. All the way through 21 and 22. It just gets better and better and better. At the end of 22, John, it overwhelms John, the writer, in fact. And he says, oh, Lord Jesus, come. This is what we have waiting for us, friends. Paul's asking us to compare two things on a scale. Put your sufferings on this side of the scale. Put our future glory on that side of the scale and see which one is more weighty. Paul said there's no comparison. The weight, weighted glory of the future is so intensely more than anything you might be suffering with. It's not even worth comparing. You might say, well, I don't know if I can put up with another day of my physical pain. According to Paul in Romans 8, he said, yes, you can. Compare it to future glory. You might say that you can't work another week for your current boss or live another day with your spouse or take another disappointment with your kids, your finances, or your health. And Paul would say, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Wait against the future glory. Do the math, Paul is saying. Do the math. He would say, all your suffering, all the horrible things that you have to endure, they're real and they're painful. But listen, it's only a lifetime. And then eternity. Eternity. That's a long time. What a wonderful perspective Paul's laying out for us. Do the math. These sufferings are not compared to the glory ahead of us. Our present sufferings are light compared to the weight of glory. We heard it read earlier, 2 Corinthians 4.17. And, and this comes from a guy that knows suffering probably more than any other Christian ever. This light momentary affliction. <laughs> Just remember what Paul went through. And he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, it doesn't even come close. You can suffer well. We see in verse 19 an important expectation. In verse 18, what did we see? We saw in verse 18 an important comparison between suffering and glory. Now Paul says, let's, let's talk about our expectation. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. What's he talking about here? Well, this verse is answering why we should patiently endure suffering. Verse 19 begins with the word for, and he's basically explaining verse 18. Why should we endure? Because the second coming is right around the corner, he says. That's what that, word, that phrase means, revealing of the sons of God. That's going to happen at the second coming. God is going to reveal all those who are his. One day, there won't be a question, are they, do they know Christ or do they not know? When Christ returns, everybody will know. The revealing of the sons of glory. And then he talks about this, these weird verses here in 21 and 22 about the creation groaning and what's going on there. Well, if you remember, the creation was subjected to futility. When was the creation subjected to futility? In Genesis 3, the curse, the fall. 
you know, the creation is actually suffering as well. The, the, it's, it's declining, it's, it's deteriorating. The second law of thermodynamics is part of the curse. And so Paul is saying, look at everything has been affected by this fall. The, the creation, us, all of creation has been affected. The animal kingdom even has suffered. You know, my, my wife is a great animal lover and she doesn't like the, you know, videos or programs like Animal Planet where cheetahs chase down little deer and kill them. It's like, oh, you know, like, that's not normal according to God's original plan. That's suffering, that's death, that's demise. The, the whole creation is groaning to get out of that. It seems that same thing that we're groaning in expectation of ending. Friends, one day the curse will be lifted, all suffering and sorrow will end, and navigating our current suffering well requires a right perspective. A right perspective. The second thing out of the three in order to navigate suffering is found in verses 23 through 25. And we see there a good hope is also required beside the right perspective, a good hope, 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for one who hopes, for who hopes in what he already has. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. A good hope is also going to help you navigate your trials, your suffering, your hardship. You know, we, we need to know, of course, biblical hope is different than secular hope. We use the word hope to communicate our wishful thinking about the mariner season or the weather this weekend, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about when he uses the word hope. Biblical hope is significantly different than that. Biblical hope is more like anticipating of something certain. It's going to happen and, and we're anxiously anticipating that happening. And so our hope must be very strong in order to survive the trials and challenges we face uh, in this world. We, we face disappointments, we face sorrows. And so if we're gonna navigate that well, we must have a, hurt, a certain hope. This is what Paul is communicating here. So what keeps us getting up, going to work, working on our marriage, raising our kids, sacrificing our time, giving of our money, is something in the future, something certain, something real. So Paul is saying that we must live our present lives with a future orientation. Can you say you do that? That you're living your present life with a future orientation? Paul says that's the, the second way to get through the suffering, the pain, the darkness of your current life. Keep a view on the future. Compare it to the future and now hope in the future. This is why Paul told the Colossians to set their mind on things above, not on things beneath. You've heard it said that he is, a per he is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Have you heard that? This person is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Well, uh, I'm not sure that person exists. Some godly thinkers have it the other way. They say that no one is earthly good until they are sufficiently heavenly minded. I would agree with that. That's what Paul is saying. 
Very few of us think on things above as much as we should. Most of our struggles come as a result of not thinking on the things above, of being consumed with, you know, the earth and material, worldly things. In these verses, Paul is calling us to live our Christian life with the strong hope of future glory. Keep that hope in view. You want to get through the darkness? You want to get through the difficulties that you're facing? You must have a right perspective. You must, you must compare your current sufferings with future glory, and you must have a sure and certain future hope. This is what Paul is saying. That this type of hope stabilizes us. It, it solidifies our faith during hard times. If we try to live our life without this future hope in God, we're going to forfeit peace. We're going to forfeit joy. And unfortunately, some of us are going to forfeit our faith. Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope, isn't that a great name for God, the God of hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God is a God of hope who brings joy and peace to those who will hope in him. When we hope in God, we have his joy and peace flood our souls. Do you need joy and peace in your life as you navigate these challenging times that I'm describing? That comes from hoping in God. And this hope, we groan for this hope, it says here in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await. We groan because we're under a curse just like creation. Of course, we there is referring to Christians. We're groaning just like the creation is groaning. And it says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit to help us. That's, the, that's an interesting idea here. Let me explain to you what Paul is saying. God is responsible for the entire harvest, right? Everything that's going to be brought into the, the barn comes from the hand of God. The entire harvest is a blessing from God. But all that we get up front is just the first fruit, just a taste of the full harvest. And the taste, in this case, is the Holy Spirit of God. He's been given to every believer as a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the future when we receive the full harvest of God, when we receive all the blessings of being with him in glory without anything inhibiting that relationship, the full harvest. We now have a small taste, and it's the Holy Spirit of God. It's a first fruit. It's not the whole fruit. It's just the first. And we are awaiting eagerly, it says there, for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you're thinking about what he said just a little bit earlier in verse 15, we, have, we are adopted as sons, right? So what's Paul saying here? How can he say we are adopted as sons and then here in verse 23 say that we're eagerly awaiting the adoption of sons? This is really, I think, important for you to hear. First of all, the, the eager awaiting has the idea of craning your neck to see something. So like when you're at the airport and the mass of people are coming in from an inbound flight and you're waiting for that loved one that you haven't seen in months, what do you do? No, you're, you're doing this kind of thing, aren't you? You're looking, trying to get eye contact, oh, there they are, and your eyes light up. That's this kind of anticipation. That's this kind of eager awaiting. When's Jesus coming? When is my body going to be redeemed? And so forth. Uh, this, 
this is what it's referring to, how, what our attitude ought to be for the, the, the glory that's to be had in Christ Jesus. But about the adoption of sons, this is really fun to, to think about. There is more to our adoption as sons of God and daughters of God than the forgiveness of sins in the members in his body. So there's, when you come to faith, you're adopted into the family of God, and that is a wonderful experience, an important experience. Being here as a member of God's family is a blessing, right? It's nothing compared to what's coming, is what Paul's saying. There is yet more to be had for those of you who are in Christ. There's more to your adoption than what you're currently experiencing. More than the forgiveness of sin, which is awesome. More than the fellowship of the saints, which is awesome. But there is, in fact, the glory in the presence of God and everything that comes with it. <laughs> this is fun to think about. Our inheritance, what's coming what we're craning our necks for includes resurrected bodies, just like Jesus when he came out of the tomb. That's what we'll have. It includes un un uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, anything interrupts fellowship with Jesus Christ, right? A bird chirping outside your window when you're trying to read your Bible interrupts your fellowship with Jesus Christ. An argument with your spouse, a noisy kid, who knows what? interrupts your fellowship with Jesus, then nothing will interrupt your fellowship with Jesus. Eternal, uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus with the absence of sin, eternal joy and bliss. That is what awaits us. That's the full adoption that Paul is talking about. Here's what's going on. We have a redeemed soul living in an unredeemed body. That's what's happening. And so we long for that day when our bodies will catch up with our soul and will be completely redeemed. Top to bottom. Nothing in between. Which is why the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, rather, at the end of Revelation says, Come, Lord Jesus, please come. Do we eagerly await Jesus like that? John Stott said, We are only half saved right now. It's <laughs> a good way to think about it. Of course, we're completely saved. But we've only experienced half of the joy, half of the blessing. And this hope is something to which we've been saved. Verse 24. For, this, for in this hope you were saved. When you came to faith, one of the things that you were told in coming to faith was that this, there's this hope out there. There's this glory. There's this wonderful future that awaits those who are in Christ, right? Isn't that what you heard? That's what we all heard. If, if and when we, we submit our lives to Christ and, and turn and, and receive the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, part of that is this hope to which we've been saved. We're, we're saved anticipating this great hope that Paul's describing. That one day, at his second coming, the hope of our renewed bodies in his eternal presence will be realized. When we see Jesus, everything about us will be redeemed. The redemption of our bodies will complete our salvation. No sorrow, no suffering, no tears, no sin, only joy. <laughs> what a tremendous hope this is. But it remains a hope, right? That's what he says here. Uh, no hope that is seen. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? It's not yet experienced. It's out there in the future. And by the way, that's by God's design. It's the carrot. It's to keep us going, keep us keeping on. 
keep us pursuing Christ, keep us dependent. This is why God does this, to continue in our perseverance, which is what the next point is seen in verse 25, which keeps us patient. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Wait for what? Redemption of our bodies, the presence of God, future glory. That's what we're waiting for with patience. It it keeps us wanting more. It keeps us uh, willing to remain in the battle, to submit to Christ in our suffering. In fact, if you look at the word patience closely, some translations have that word translated perseverance. It comes from the Greek word hupomone. And the hupomone is a, is a, a word that has two parts to it. And mone means to abide, and hupo means under. So it's like a hupo or hypodermic needle to remain under the challenge, to remain under the discipline, to remain under the suffering is what this hope does for us. It keeps us strong in the midst of hardship. This is what we're going to see in the Christian life. And in order to maintain our joy and faith in the midst of our suffering, we must have this hope. We must not collapse like those without Christ would collapse. We have such a strong hope, a certain hope, a clear hope, that we're able to persevere and not give up and be undone by our circumstances. This is what Christian hope does for us. It helps us navigate suffering. A right perspective and Christian hope. Do you want to survive the challenges of your Christian life? Of course you do. How are you going to do that? Maintain a right perspective and have a good hope. Thirdly, we see in verses 26 and 27 the third thing. Let's look at verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the third thing that's going to help you through your sufferings, the Holy Spirit of God himself. We have to have this divine help. You remember what Jesus called the Holy Spirit in John 16? The helper. (laughs) Paul here is building off of that, and he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. He is a helper. He helps those of us who are suffering, those who are weak, those who need encouragement. The Holy Spirit does that for us. And it says that he prays for us is the one way he helps us. And I think we all understand the importance of prayer in the Christian life. It's one of the great gifts that God has given his people. We can actually access the throne of God for each other. What a privilege and blessing that is. We get together in our small groups and take prayer requests and pray for one another. We, we, we do this regularly because it's such a privilege to hold one another up in prayer before God. Many of you have prayed for me and for Sun Valley Church faithfully over the years, and I'm convinced that by experience and by the word of God that prayer is critical to the spiritual life of every believer. But as valuable as our prayers are for one another, can you imagine the benefit of God praying for you? Can you imagine the benefit of God praying for you? You're saying, well, how does God pray to God? Have you ever heard of the Trinity? This is how he does it. The Spirit prays to the Father and to the Son for us. And as we get down into the next section of Scripture, we'll see that Jesus does the same thing. Jesus prays to the Father and the Spirit for our benefit. And so we have the Holy Spirit of God 
praying to God the Father for our benefit. What a wonderful blessing this is. So, the first sub-point under this section is that the Holy Spirit is involved in our spiritual lives. He's involved in our daily struggle. Verse 26, he helps us in our weakness. The word helps in, in English comes from a very important Greek word. The, the English word helps doesn't do justice to what Paul is communicating. In English, the word contains five letters, helps. In Greek, the word is 17 letters. It's 17, takes Paul 17 letters to communicate the power of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of believers. We say helps, like, uh, you wanna help me with the dishes? Sure, okay. This is on a different plane. <laughs> Listen to what Paul means when he says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So Paul is using a root word here in the original language and he adds two prefixes to that root word. That adds up to 17 letters in this word. The word communicates the following, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us weak ones and powerfully takes hold of us and pulls us along in the Christian life towards Christ-likeness. He helps you, <laughs> is what we, how we translate that. That's insignificant, isn't it? That's not a really good parallel. Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us weak ones and powerfully takes hold of us and pulls us along in the Christian life towards Christ-likeness. That's what that word means. Paul is really highlighting that word. So if you have a pencil or a highlighter or a pen, you ought to circle that word in your Bible. Helps, really important word. The Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. He helps you in your pain and in your sorrow. The Holy Spirit comes along and uses all those things that are painful for us and grabs hold of us and drags us through all the sufferings of life towards Christ. It's like those moving sidewalks in, in airports. You know, you get on those things and you think you're Superman. You walk past people and you kind of smirk at them and, you know, you're moving three times as fast as they are. That's moving, that moving sidewalk is the Holy Spirit in your Christian life. He grabs hold of you, you do your walking, but he pulls you towards Christ at three times the speed. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This word, this verb, helps, is in the present tense. Paul decided to use the present tense as he wrote this particular word because the Holy Spirit is always at work with us. He never takes a vacation from helping you. He's never out of your life. He's never not paying attention. He is always actively, which is also part, it's an active voice verb, actively involved, dynamically, energetically working to accomplish this purpose. In every single trial and hardship you face, He's pulling you through it towards Christ. And it's in the indicative mood. This word helps, meaning you've probably heard this. He's just indicating a truth. That's the, what the indicative mood means. It's, he's, he's talking about facts here. The Holy Spirit is actually doing this. He's doing this now as you sit here to accomplish his purposes in you. The reason we need this level of intense involvement of the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives is because of our weakness, because of the suffering that we endure and our inherent weakness. Jesus said that we are so spiritually weak we can do nothing without him. We must have God actively involved, regularly involved, intently involved in our spiritual journey. Well, we're going to lose sight. We're going to lose hope. 
we're going to lose joy. You may sit here thinking, well, I'm not that needy. Well, evidently, Paul and Jesus thought you were, thought we were. Paul included himself here. We, he says, our weakness. We don't know what to pray. Paul was including himself. The apostle of apostles was saying, I'm weak. If Paul thinks you're weak, if Jesus thinks you're weak, you're weak. We are weak. We have things that we don't know how to navigate. We don't know how to deal with certain pressures of life, certain sorrows, certain disappointments, which is why we need God actively involved. So Jesus sends his Holy Spirit as the helper into our lives. And sometimes when we just don't know what to pray, don't know what to think, don't know how to navigate our situation, the Holy Spirit says, stand right here and I'll draw you through. The Spirit intercedes for us. He's active in us. This is what God is committed to. He's committed to your sanctification. He's committed to you making it to glory. Friends, you can survive your suffering. You can make it through. You can suffer well, whatever that suffering is. If you maintain a right perspective, a good hope, and have divine help. Let's pray. God, as we come now to the close of our service, I just want to pray for those in this room who have needed this encouragement in their lives, feeling beat down, feeling discouraged and sorrowful, not sure about the future. I pray that these words from the Apostle Paul would be the source of great hope in our current circumstances. That because of the future glory that awaits us, for those of us who are in Christ, we can navigate our challenging circumstances. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can, in fact, joyfully succeed in our current circumstances. Father, build us up through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Give us a mind to be able to judge correctly, to do the math, as Paul would say, to, to keep this good hope of, of future glory in view as we rely and depend upon the Holy Spirit to do his work, which he has promised to do in each of us who follow Christ. Bless us now, Father. Bless those who are weak and weary and heavy laden who come to you for rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.